What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. We are coming... You know, over the weekend, I think it was oh, you know, sort of, you know, you lose track of days um, when, you know, during the pandemic, when everything is, you know, your home, your, your kind of normal um, schedules and sense of, of, of work time and, and, and home time is, is, is uh, confused. But we just had the end, the, the real end, end, end of the U.S. war in Afghanistan. And with that, we, we can look back now. A on on almost twenty years of of that mission war. You know, we need we need sort of a new vocabulary. What we call this, it's not. It hasn't been an an occupation of of Afghanistan in a pretty long time, but kind of you know, sort of an occupation, sort of a war, but you know, war at certain times, not at others. Uh, I I've noticed that in my writing about it, I'll, I'll often call it a mission, which is, that's a gobbledygook kind of word that really, doesn't really make any sense. Um, but in any case, we can now look back on, on 20 years of that war, occupation, mission, whatever you want to call it, and also the last two or three weeks, uh, which has obviously been uh, very consequential, very loud, uh, very ugly. Um, on many levels, in many places. So we're going to look at that. We're also going to look at this. There's a new law in Texas, which effectively outlaws abortion. Um, doesn't technically do it, but it basically says you can't have uh, you can't have an abortion once a a fetal heartbeat is detectable, and a heartbeat is detectable as 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 soon as like six weeks. And that's within the window when most women don't even know they're pregnant. Um, you know, not to state the obvious, especially for our, our female listeners, but you know, just the, the mechanics of months, monthly cycles, you, you generally are not going to find out much sooner than that. In any case, they've set up this law. You know, the big thing is that they're effectively outlawing abortion in Texas, but they have set up the law in such a way to game not the not the jurisprudence about abortion in this country, but the mechanics of how you challenge laws. And in doing that, they have not actually created a punishment or or yeah, I guess a punishment, the right way to do it. They've created a, a private right of action. So if you find out by your estimation that someone has had an abortion when a fetal heartbeat is findable, you can sue and get a cash prize. I mean, that's sort of a, a funny way to put it, but that's what it is. You get a, you get a cash prize if you sue. And so the idea is to make the the costs, the liability for providing abortion, certainly if you're providing abortions, which in many cases is when there is a fetal heartbeat, you know, detectable. But even if there's not, you know, how do you, do you want to get, you know, if you're an abortion provider in the state of Texas, do you want to get into court where someone's saying, well, you didn't look hard enough, but in fact, it was actually, you know, you could have detected it. Ergo, give me my $10,000. We're going to talk about both of those things. Uh, fun stuff, right? A lot, a lot, a lot of great stuff going on in the uh, in the country right now. And we're also going to get to your questions. We're going to give you an update on the great uh, Josh Marshall podcast theme song competition. We are we are making our way through all of your uh, great entries. It's really uh, you know it's it's a it's a it's a fun process. Uh, but before we get to all of that, let me remind you that 
The Josh Marshall Podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You experience the freshest way to cold brew the summer with Grady's Cold Brew Kit. You know, it's funny. It's, it's like technically, I guess, still the summer, but like where I'm sitting right now, it's just been pouring rain for like 24 hours. So, and it's and it's kind of chilly. So it's it's a little little uh, fake out here about what's the summer and what's not. In any case, the ultra convenient all-in-one kit comes packed with Grady's famous New Orleans-style coffee blend of 100% Arabica beans and imported French chicory. No need for any equipment. You just add water to the reusable spigot pouch for 36 cups of bold, velvety smooth iced coffee. And the best part is you don't have to wait in line or pay, you know, coffee shop prices or anything like that. Grady's pours directly from your fridge and costs less than a buck a cup. If you're ready to give it a try, get 25% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's promo code TPM. So, uh, Kate, what's going on? I guess we'll start with the Supreme Court because that just happened overnight, basically. And the weird way that happened, kind of in keeping with how the court is really liking to operate in almost complete silence of late, is that basically people who were watching the case had to stay up until midnight to see if the court was going to block the law or not. Midnight came and went without a word. So now, as of, you know, 1201, Texas is basically operating in a post-row time. And just like you kind of outlaw, outlined in your uh, in your intro, so every abortion past six weeks is now illegal in the state of Texas. And the court uh, could still act on an emergency appeal from abortion providers asking that the law be paused, basically. But, you know, kind of legal watchers who I follow are basically in shock that we still have heard not a single peep from the Supreme Court now about 12 hours after the law went into effect. Now, is it is it are they shocked that they have in effect okayed it or that there's just been no comment at all? Like, would there be would is is there a way the court would affirmatively say something and the upshot would be to say, yeah, we're good with this? How what's what are the specifics here? Right. Well, I think they the expectation is that they will rule on the emergency appeal one way or another. But I do think the root of the shock comes from this idea that they essentially just outlawed abortion in Texas without a word, you know, without any kind of affirmative action, just silent passivity. And this comes on the heels of in the last two weeks, the court has used the shadow docket to, uh, you know, force a return to Trump's uh, remain in Mexico rule, which makes asylum seekers stay in Mexico while their cases are adjudicated and ending the federal extension of the eviction moratorium, both of which they did with unsigned opinions in the middle of the night. Now, what is the shadow dog? What does that mean? Right. So the shadow docket is basically like this expedited process that historically has been used for things like, you know, execution appeals for death row inmates. The idea is that it's or, you know, very kind of unremarkable legislation or um, litigation. You know, the idea is just kind of that it's fast and that there should be a standard of irreparable harm to people. That is why they have to kind of act right away. But with the overtaking of the court by conservatives, it's increasingly being used to kind of just dump opinions in that are usually pretty short, you know, don't have a ton of analysis of the legal thinking involved. And perhaps most worryingly of all, because it's this expedited process, you don't have to go through the usual hoops of a case being argued before the Supreme Court. So with both the eviction moratorium and the Remain in Mexico thing, they never got full briefs. There were no oral arguments. It was, you know, it's just kind of a way for them to rule on these really controversial issues without any transparency or any ability for kind of outside observers to see what is the what's the debate between the justices, what's the reasoning of the justices to, you know, agree with this policy. And it doesn't put the lawyers argument themselves through any kind of, you know, rigorous process. Now, why would why would, um, you know, the Supreme Court doesn't have to doesn't have to care what people think. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's some arguments that at the margin they do. But uh, they've got a six to three majority on the court. Like, why? Why wouldn't they? Like, why do they have to hide to the extent that they're not being transparent? You know, they got the votes. Why don't they? I mean, think if anything, they would want to um, create uh, extensive opinions to 
you know, fasten this down into law and precedent. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't make a ton of sense, not least because they have a 15 week abortion ban out of Mississippi teed up for the next term, which starts in October, which is going to be, you know, like a full fledged normal kind of court process. So a lot of watchers of this stuff have been pointing to that as the time where if the conservatives are going to actively start dismantling Roe, that's when they'll do it. So now, I think this also came... Is, mm-hmm. 15 weeks is a lot longer than six, six weeks, weeks for right. obvious reasons, uh, ju- you know, just in the mechanics of of how people get abortions when they f- mm-hmm. when people who... who uh, when women who get pregnant and don't want to carry the pregnancy when they find out and all that kind of stuff. Now, is that is that one a more traditional ban, for lack of a better word, in the sense of like, you can't have an abortion after 15 weeks, none of this stuff about private causes of action, being able to sue and get a, and you know, and get a, get a, a um, you know, cash bonus if you sue and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's my understanding, basically, based on how the the authors of the Texas law have been kind of crowing about it. But I, I'll admit I haven't revisited the Mississippi ban in a while. I mean, the, a key is with both of these six weeks or 15 weeks, the precedent established by Roe and reestablished by Casey is the idea of fetal viability, you know, that you have a constitutional right to get an abortion before the point where the fetus can survive outside the uterus, which is widely considered to be 24 weeks. So either, I mean, both of these cases fly in the face of the court's precedent. And if they are going to uphold either of them, it would be, you know, a very kind of activist, political dismantling of the clear precedent kind of decision. So it seems like the authors of the Texas law almost openly know the law, setting aside the merits mm-hmm. of abortion rights, almost know the law is kind of, is is a bit of a cheat. It's just that they're kind of saying, ah, ha, ha, we, we found a way that you can't, since these are private causes of action, you, you can't get this, you can't get us into court very easily in right. the way that you can with the other ones. So it's, it's it, you know, it's almost open that they're, um, you know, that it's kind of a cheat. But, you know, they think that, you know, that's okay to them because they think this is what they want. Right. Fine. I mean, and it's been a learning experience. We've by this point, we've had 12 states that have tried to enact these kind of weekly bans and they've all been shot down because exactly what I said. I mean, I don't think you have to be a really brilliant legal mind to know the precedence as 24 weeks and all these bans are shorter than that. But, you know, there is this idea of like looking and learning from other states and trying to craft laws that'll kind of get around the loopholes and make it harder. In this case, you know, both kind of incentivize people to track down women who get abortions and give them a $10,000 cash prize if they successfully sue. And then at the same time, make it nearly impossible to get a pre-enforcement injunction the way that abortion providers or, you know, women's groups have been able to successfully do with these myriad of other bans across the country. Right, right, right. So, um, it's it's funny. Some someone mentioned this on on Twitter, and I and I think this is uh, right that as as a political matter, you know, everybody's thinking about um, redistricting and that how that will affect the midterm elections. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if if um, if the Democrats pass their big fiscal climate infrastructure legislation, how that's going to affect the, the midterm elections. Now Afghanistan, and and at least in the political conversation so far, I have not really seen anybody say like abortion may, you know, the whole election may be about abortion rights. Mm-hmm. And and certainly if, um, if the Supreme, now I don't know exactly what the timing is for this Mississippi case. Um, and, and in that case, okay, just, just so we're clear, it doesn't, you know, ban abortion per se. It just, it, 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 um, it just creates the window in which it's legal be much tighter. Is that right. basically right? Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, it's entirely, I don't know what the timing of when that's going to get our, you know, when we expect a, a ruling on that, but it's not, it's certainly not impossible th- that if the, if the court strikes down Roe, um, that could be the whole election. And, you know, and that's kind of not on, uh, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's wrong for me to say it's not on anybody's radars because I'm uh, obsessed about what's being legislated in Congress in Afghanistan. But I don't think at least for people who are sort of thinking about in p- just in the political sense, the midterm election, that all this other stuff could be 
you know, could become second tier if, if that happens. Yeah, I think it's to the degree that people aren't thinking of it. I think that would be a big underestimation of how pissed women particularly are going to be about this and kind of disregarding of historical precedent. Like decisions like this have galvanized whole generations of women and girls before. Um, oh, no, no. I, I, I totally recognize that. I'm, yeah. I, I'm not saying that, that I think everybody gets that if Roe is struck down, mm-hmm. all bets are off. Yeah. It's more that everyone now, when they're thinking about the midterm election, I think at least, is thinking about these things that we've been kind of uh, the legislative agenda on Capitol Hill, how re- redistricting goes, and if you know if if Afghanistan is is the big issue. And I think it's it's more like those two things have not uh, collided. Yeah, um, that's at least that's at least my perception. No, now, I we, agree let me, with you. Let me ask. Let me ask you this: Is this Mississippi law? Clearly, there is a way you could not complete that you could uphold Roe in or Casey in some fashion and also allow this law. You say, you know, instead of 24 weeks, now it's 15 weeks. Is there any conventional wisdom among court watchers about whether if the court upholds that law, are they likely to, again, uphold it in, in just Get re- you know, carve out more of Roe, or will they just say Roe's bad law, Roe's done, and it, we just don't know. I guess. Yeah. No. I mean, I talked to some like pro life type somewhat recently, and it's funny. I mean, my whole story was about basically that sect of people being absolutely baffled by the fact that there had been no movement to chip away at Roe so far. You know, they all kind of said as soon as Amy Coney Barrett got on the court, they were like starting their stopwatches and and ready. And the court didn't really act on abortion for a long time. Um, So I really do think that kind of stuff is totally in flux. And I mean, I think people are still having feelers out for how you know, quote unquote activist or how political this court is fully ready to be. Because if you remember with um, Bronovich, the the Voting Rights Act case that they made a decision on just a couple of weeks ago, the really big fear from voting rights advocates was they would use this case to completely demolish the law, you know, get rid of it even more than they already have. And it ended up being more of a, I mean, it wasn't good. It made it much harder to kind of challenge voting rights abuses, but it wasn't the whole hog hollowing out that some had feared. So, I mean, the, the question is now with these judges that were appointed under Trump's promise to only pick candidates who would overturn Roe, are they going to be willing to go to those lengths with the Mississippi case? And I think when these conversations come up, so many people always point to John Roberts and say, you know, he really cares about the legacy of the court and blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, those theories, I guess, will will be put to the test. I guess, you know, in general, it is it is often the case that the court, the court does not do more than it needs to do. Mm-hmm. And, it, and in that sense of the court has, you know, the court has before it, is this 15-week ban okay? And if you decide that it is okay, there's no need to go further and say that total bans are also okay. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's just a, generally, there's a, a sort of a, a principle of parsimony. You don't, you don't do more than you right. need to do. Now, obviously, not to compare the two, but you have, um, you have watershed cases like Brown versus Board, where the court had been had been chipping away at separate but equal, and then finally, at one point, said, "We're done. The entire jurisprudence of separate but equal is 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 gone." Um, the other thing, you know, the, the there's the sort of the Roberts reputation argument, which I think is a very real thing. We've seen that play out. I think the other thing always to remember is that, you know, Barrett is one person. She seems very rooted in. Uh, for lack of a better word, sort of right-wing Catholic thinking, as as the, that's kind of w- where she's from. But most of the people on on the court, uh, most of the conservatives on the court, the things that really motivate them are not necessarily the things that really drive pol- the political conservative process. I think when you're talking about um, you know Kavanaugh or uh, uh, Gorsuch kind of cutting away at the state's regulatory abilities. That's their, you know, that's what excites them. 
I'm not sure that abortion is really their their kind of central thing. I mean, who knows? I, I just there's all these things that 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 um that figure in, but I get you know, I guess we'll I guess we'll find out. Right. And I mean so much of abortion limitation to this point has kind of just been death by a thousand cuts, you know, heaping on impossible to maintain regulations on clinics. And then you kind of have a de facto abortion ban when you drive every single clinic out of the state. And then, you know, it just perpetuates this issue of abortion, which has always been a class issue and a race issue. And the idea that the women who are going to be most hurt by this are the ones who can't afford to fly to a different state or drive to a different state. Um, And, you know, especially in Texas, which is obviously a gigantic state, you know, has got, I think, 7 million women in it. That's just a, a huge net. I think it must be, it must be more than that. Isn't the population of, yeah, well, I think maybe, maybe of, 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 of childbearing, of childbearing age. age. Right. Yeah. Okay. Right. I was going to say there's a lot more than 14 million people in, right. in, in, in Texas. <laughs> um, I, I guess, the, you know, the other thing with, and I guess this is why it's, it's, it's no accident that this happened in Texas, that you know, states like the Dakotas or Idaho or some of these states, you can really, they're small states, they're very conservative states, and you can kind of run all the clinics out of the state just by kind of these onerous regulations. Whereas Texas is a big, big state with a very diverse, and I don't mean in this context, just racially diverse, but politically diverse. There's a lot of people in Texas, a lot of cities in Texas that have very, you know, so so it is much harder to do that in a state like Texas. And so Texas is one of the relatively few states that both has those kind of size and diversity issues, but also is just politically, in terms of who actually runs the state, more than conservative to do this kind of law. So it's kind of no, it's sort of no accident that this is where that happened. Right, exactly. I mean, and if you remember the case out of Louisiana, that was the big Supreme Court abortion case, I guess, last term. That was a case where there were only, I think, two clinics left total that were kind of fighting for it. And it's, you know, the kind of stuff like The doctors who perform abortions have to have admitting privileges at a hospital, which, you know, on its face, you're like, okay, that sounds reasonable. And then you dig into it and realize most doctors who, you know, kind of specialize in abortions don't have admitting privileges because that requires having that you're at a hospital or that you admit your patients a certain amount of times. And since abortions are safe procedures, you usually don't have to hospitalize your patients, you know, so it's kind of completely unnecessary and just there to make it impossible for clinics to run. And also that you have, I, I mean, my recollection at least, the other part of that is that once you admit a doc, once you give admitting privileges to a doctor who's who does abortions, who that's what they, you know, that's what they do, you have all the dependencies with, you know, federal money and like, you know, do you get any money from the local Catholic charity? All these kind of things that for most hospitals, dude, why, why? That's just not, you know, so all, all those all that different kind of stuff. I mean, they, they've, as you say, it's, it's the court really, um, for a long time has not had the, the, the courage of its notional convictions in the sense that if Casey is still the law, there's, there's, there's no other area of law when the standing precedent says X. I mean, you can you can overturn the precedent, precedent, but that is the precedent, and yet you allow all these different things to happen that make the precedent meaningless. Mm-hmm. That's that is not that, that's not how it normally works. Um, but here we are. Here we are. So I so, mean, in the near term, on this, we'll just be keeping our eyes out for basically any court action. You know, if they do anything with that emergency appeal. Or not, because if they don't, I mean, it's just, it flies in the face of the precedent. I mean, it's not even close. It's just clearly in violation of Roe. Well, also, I mean, I, I, it, it, even on the sort of the, just the logic of, of the court, if you have a case that is being, that is in the process of being decided that speaks directly to that, you almost make that decision moot in a way. If you're if you're allowing if you're allowing that uh, principle effect whatever to be in place for a year while you're notionally decide you know it doesn't even doesn't even quite make sense in mechanical terms for how the right. court I, I don't know normally I mean works. and in the meantime you know as long as this law stands 
horrific stories are just going to start pouring in because another critical piece is that this Texas law doesn't have any exemption for rape or incest. So, you know, there is that piece. There is the putting a bounty on the head of women who are trying to get abortions. I mean, it's just... Well, is let me ask you this question. Mm-hmm. Is it... Am I right that the law still is is targeting the providers yeah rather than rather than the women getting i mean obviously target in the sense of like as you said you're they're going to be looking for women who had abortions who i guess they convinced to say and then he the the she the, you know the, the the doctor heard the heartbeat and gave me the abortion anyway so you know kind of like i think you were saying before we went on the air a sort of a different version of that long standing story where you have people standing outside clinics like harassing women as they're going to you know as they're as they're going to get abortion so um right yeah, it's, no, an, it's performing the procedure or anyone who quote aids or abets the procedure and it's you know it's not at all clear that that doesn't apply to anyone, you know, from the doctor to the staff at the clinic to the taxi driver who dropped off the woman. You know, it's just it's a slippery slope. Right. Right. OK. So well, uh, on to the equally cheerful topic of Afghanistan. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's it's onward and upward here. Um, well, you know, we we had as as I was saying in the intro, we're out now. It's done. It's totally, totally done. I guess we got out. Uh, a day ahead of schedule. Um, you never want to leave things to the last moment. Um, and now we're, I, I guess, in in the, the people in Afghanistan have the situation on the ground to deal with. And in, in this country, there's sort of a political fight over what happened. Um, I don't know. This is I. This has been one of those rare issues where it is. It's kind of seemed clearer to me over time. Well, really? Why is that? I I just think that um, I think this was the right decision. I think that the ugly, messy reality of it was baked in all along. And a lot of people have not been ready to accept that reality. Um, and I think that it has been, you know, the, the evacuation was pretty successful just in the sense of like, they got a lot of people out. Um, and so I think that has, I think that has, um, given more weight to the argument that the U S Pentagon, the white house managed what it could control about that very bad situation pretty well. You know, the government collapses, then what do you do? Do you, you know, do you have to fight your way back in to kind of take an, you know, take an airport where you can evacuate people? Well, no, I mean, they, they, I I was mentioning this in a, in a, in a, uh, in a post this morning. If you go back to, I guess, basically the, the second week of August, um, at this point, the U.S. is totally out of the country. It's clear that the government is falling quickly. It hasn't fallen yet, but like city after city is falling around the country. So we still don't, you know, we still don't know that Kabul is going to fall like in a day, but like you can see where things are going. And then the U.S. starts sending people back in versus a thousand. Then it's like another 2,000 and eventually it's six or 7,000 troops holding that airport. And this was portrayed at the time like, oh, Oh, the chaos, the the poor planning, like first you're out, now you're back in, make up your mind, blah, 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 blah. Well, you see this happening and you know you need to evacuate people. You need to control an airport and you need to not just control an airport, you need to control it in like with overwhelming capacity. So you're not like fighting over the airport. You're not, you're there in force and and you can kind of take your time. Um, so that's that's my take. I, it, 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 it has... It has seemed clearer to me over time and the the efforts of a lot of people, I think, to kind of have their cake and eat it too. Say, oh, well, yeah, clearly we had to leave, but this is, this is an outrage how it happened. That these were, I think, uh, in most cases, a mix of either ill-informed, ill-informed in the sense of like, when governments collapse, it happens fast. And it happens by definition chaotically and, ma- and messy, especially if you're the one 
on the side of the government that falls, right? Or people who are just really acting in bad faith. So that's what I mean by, to me, it has become increasingly clear over time. Yeah. And well, and you spin on this kind of after the collective establishment media kind of freak out over it. You know, the new spin is now, well, anyone who thinks that the Biden administration would have evacuated people at such a clip without the media criticism is kidding yourselves. I was just like, oh my goodness, what a stretch. (laughs) Well, you know, there is, uh, you know, uh, infants, one of the things about this, when, 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 when people are infants and then as you're moving towards being a toddler, infants think the whole world is them, right? They have no sense that when, when daddy comes and, and, and brings a bottle, a, an infant thinks that's a, daddy is a part of their body, right? And this is one of the basic things about, about the developmental um, individuation process what, that you go to, you go through from zero to one to two, that you start realizing that you are an isolated person and there's a world out there and you interact with the world, but the world is not you. And I think what we have seen here is that there are many people well into life in their 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s who can get hung up in that very early developmental stage when they think the entire world is them. And, and uh, that evacuation, that was actually, it was me being upset that made the evacuation happen. A lot can happen if you are, if you are in a state of arrested development about, about causation and the world and your own role in it. That is what I would say about that. Yeah, I'm really curious now if we're going to kind of see like, you know, the oxygen has all kind of been sucked up in these first few weeks by the, you know, Biden is botching this. This is going to ruin his presidency takes. So I wonder if our next generation is going to be all of you are wrong about that. Biden did a good job takes. We'll see how that we'll see yeah, how it evolves. Yeah. I mean, it's um, I, I tend I'm not a disinterested player in this argument, obviously. I've sort of made clear what I think. So it's it's in the nature of it that I think, oh, eventually everybody will realize I'm right and blah, 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 blah. Um, my sense is, though, that there's a reason why they call it the first draft of history, because it's wrong, right? Um, my sense is, though, is, is that over time, the more enduring reality is that he ended it. Um, and that is a... Wherever you come down on, you know, inevitable result of ending it baked in to the failure itself or kind of like, oh, man, kind of that was a little messy, like could have done better. I think both of those will kind of recede in significance compared to he ended it and it's done. It is done and done and done. And he said he would end it and he ended it. Now, obviously, we don't know that that maybe maybe in 10 years will kind of be thinking, oh, it was a catastrophic decision. We, we don't know. Who knows? We, yeah. we don't know what, what, how history will unfold. But I do think that reality is the enduring one. And even now, you know, uh, chaos is ephemeral, in, you know, in the nature of it. Um, and especially how, especially how our kind of very media-driven culture understands things pictures and videos you see again and again on Twitter or, you know, on, on, on loop on CNN, those are pictures. That's ephemeral stuff. So that, that's my, that is my sense. I think that in in a way, this entire argument we're having, you know, inevitable or sloppy execution, that whole debate I think is ephemeral. The real thing is kind of like he ended it. Right. And that's that is a reality that that will endure whether or not people whether it is whether or not is it is a good reality or not or how people will see that reality that we don't know but that's the, right. that's the that's the enduring thing and I do think like you know for better or for worse probably for worse there are just factors of our media eco- ecosystem that kind of work against this story continuing in perpetuity which include the American people's general disinterest in Afghanistan that's pretty much pervaded the past 20 years and disinterest that only really ends when American people are killed, you know, service members. Um, so that won't be, you know, a reality anymore, or at least not a reality out out in front. Because I don't, 
you know, we don't want to be naive. There might still be some kind of military presence there that, you know, we don't know about or we're not told about. Um, no, and it's, also, it's also the case. I mean, we should remember that the U.S. deploys special forces right, teams. Right, exactly. In countries all over the world all the time. And, and, you know, we don't, we don't, we don't, uh, we don't see it for very understandable reasons. We don't declare it when we, when we send a kind of a special operations team on a mission into Yemen or, I mean, obviously we all remember we did it in Pakistan. Now that was a big case because we, we killed Osama bin Laden. So, but I mean, the point is, is that there would be nothing strange. In fact, we have all but telegraphed it. There would be nothing strange if over the next year, there are a number of, of U.S. military operations inside Pakistan in the sense that we do that again. We do that in a lot of countries. That's just what we do. That that won't mean we'll have gone back any more than it means we're occupying Yemen or some, you know, something like that. And again, in, in the sense of telegraphing, uh, it has been, you know, Biden makes clear, you know, over the horizon capacity to do counterterrorism operations. Well, what does that mean? That means sending in bombers or sending in special operations teams. We're, we're telegraphing that that's the case. Yeah. And then the other factor here that I think just works against its kind of longevity as a story is just this September, when Congress comes back, it's going to be, there's not going to be any available oxygen left in the political sphere. You know, we're going to have reconciliation. We're going to have debt ceiling. We're going to have potential government shutdown. We're going to have voting rights. It's just... You know, and again, for better, or for worse, I do think the kind of free for all of using this as a cudgel against Biden and the speculation of this is going to lose him the midterms and this is, you know, plummeting his approval numbers. That's got a shelf life kind of whether or not you think it's valid. Yeah, no, absolutely. Look, the other thing is that there aren't going to be enough. There are not going to be a lot of reporters there. Yeah, that too. Um, and so you just don't see things. And, and, and one of the, you know, one of the. One of the things that happened over the last two or three weeks is there'd be a report like, oh, this person was killed. This happened. Or or um, uh, there was a stampede and a couple, you know, and, and, and people were killed. Well, you know, <laughs> a lot of people were killed over the last 20 years. Yep. You know, you have midnight raids looking for, looking for Taliban, looking for, you know, looking for these people. You have, I mean, not all in one direction. I mean, if you look at the if you look at the statistics, the death toll for the war in Afghanistan had gone down pretty dramatically for U.S. service members. Now, but if you look at for members of the Afghan army, civilians, it was actually going up. Um, and then there's the whole other issue of this kind of new thing we've created over the last twenty or thirty years: contractors. What is contractors? Contractors are really just ex-military who are now being, uh, you know, being run through private companies. It's it's not. Uh, this isn't the people who renovated your kitchen, right? I mean, this this is this is we have a a privatized, you know, para army for lack of a better word. I mean, they're all ex-military. I mean, in some cases ex-CIA, whatever. Um, and one, you know, one of the very interesting things was in the sort of the debates about are leaving Afghanistan, one of the big criticisms was, well, they also, you know, uh, took out the contractors. The contractors, they were no longer allowing contractors to provide, you know, various kind of military services, air support, logistics. Well, this is, I'm always, uh, this is not a good thing. Because again, contractors are U.S. people the use of violent force under the auspices of the United States with U.S. money, there's no, different, there, there's no difference there in any meaningful sense between just doing things with the U.S. military. But like one thing is that the con- when the contractors get killed, they don't show up as they don't go to Dover. They don't, you know, they don't get all of that stuff that, that accompanies when, when members of the U.S. military die. But again, that's the whole thing is kind of a, the whole contractor thing is basically a dodge. Right. All right. Shall we take some questions? Yes. Yes. Okay. We'll start what with we this got? question from Doug, who says, if Biden's approval numbers have been slipping because of the Delta surge, would that driver also negatively affect Republican governors up for reelection in 2022, especially in states where they have contributed to the spike by fighting mitigation measures? What do you, what do you think? think? 
Oh, uh-huh, what do thanks. I think? Ah, yeah, I'm totally <laughs> Um Yes and no. Uh, I think we've I, I think we've seen that you know Ron DeSantis. There was actually a poll out a few days ago that had him you know net positive one point you know like something like forty seven to forty six. But in general, his numbers have been pretty poor um, over the last few months. So to a great degree. Yes, it does. It does affect them. They, you know, it, it, people don't like it. Um, but I think the, the the other way to answer this question is polls and public opinion are not a unitary thing. The when you when you sample public opinion, it's not like a swimming pool where it's all kind of one undifferentiated thing. Uh, you need to look at where support is 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 moving, and in a lot of those states. Uh, the Democrats who, um, you know, the Democrats who opposed these kind of, you know, kind of pro-COVID policies, they've always been against, you know, against this or that governor. And the Republicans have a sort of a deep ideological um, commitment to these policies. And that can mean that, that the public's, that it doesn't affect them the same way, necessarily. Um and that is so it's not necessarily the, the the same and it's also the case that i think what is you know what is happening at the national level it, it's it's knocked down biden's support among democrats to it not a huge amount but a little cuz everything sucks now and that affects how people think of the president and that's just so i think the best answer to that is Mostly, yeah, it'll 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 hurt them, but it doesn't affect everybody in the same way because different politicians are relying on. You know, we have this magical thing of fifty percent support as the sort of the that's health if you're over fifty percent. Different kinds of politicians rely on different groups of people for that fifty percent, so it doesn't it doesn't doesn't necessarily function the same way. That's kind of what I've been thinking about it as well because. There is, you know, kind of like Trump, right? It's like there's this group of people who are, you know, I was going to say virulently, but are aggressively kind of anti-COVID mitigation. You know, the ones who are kind of staking their political identity on going to school board meetings and yelling about masks and stuff. So, I mean, those people are baked in, right? And you would think that there's also the people who are pro-COVID mitigation who are baked in. So that was just what I was wondering about this is, so is it just the people who are kind of up for grabs who are affecting the numbers, the people who aren't aggressively pro, aggressively anti-COVID mitigation, who are both, you know, kind of bringing Biden's numbers down a bit, whose interest doesn't really go further than my life is still kind of annoying and he's the president now. And is that the case for like the Republican governors as well? Yeah, I, I think the answer is mostly yes. Um, and again, but there's other things like presidents sort of are sui generis in our system. You know, you don't, you don't think, uh, when things are going bad, you don't think about like the mayor of your town, like, ah, he's not getting the job done. You know, (laughs) we don't think then governors are, governors have a lot more sway, but, uh, in our political culture, to a certain extent, for good reasons, the president is the person. Right, not everybody even knows who the governor is. Well, pretty much everybody knows who the president is. So, um, you know, it's 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 uh, it's it's unpredictable, and it's also the case that um, it's always the standards of, uh, you know, to what end? Joe Biden will not be under no circumstances will Joe Biden's name appear on a ballot until twenty twenty four. Maybe he won't run and it'll never appear on a ballot, but it won't happen before then. Uh, DeSantis is up for election in 2022. And and just as important, he is up for consideration as a presidential in 2022 and 2023. So he needs to be he needs to be kicking ass to have that kind of inside track to like, oh, we want to run this guy for president. If he's at like, you know, 45 or something like that, that's devastating. If you're, if you're, if, you know, if you want to run for president, because you don't, you don't pick someone who's just, to the extent people are picked in this way, 
you don't pick someone to run for president because they're kind of getting by at the state level. You want someone who's like kicking ass at the state level and you say, oh, we'll bring that guy national. So, right. I mean, I think the other piece of this is just if you had asked me kind of before what we know about the 2020 election, I would have thought that Biden would have had the strongest argument and that, that you know, the kind of Democratic counterpoints at this point would have the strongest argument by saying, you know, Greg Abbott is going to make the pandemic continue forever. I'll bring us back to normal. You know, I would just think that alone would be enough to sway people who aren't kind of the the diehard partisans. But I mean, based on 2020, there was not, that wasn't what the reaction was. I mean, obviously Biden won, but it was no kind of, you know, big, big landslide. And, you know, we don't have to get into all the, the baked in structural stuff that contributes to that. But at least in that election, I don't think really the we're going to kind of address the pandemic and try to get back to normal argument ended up being as compelling as I thought that it would be. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm sort of of mixed minds on that because I think in some ways it was very compelling, but you have to remember that we're talking about like 3% of the electorate. Right. Right. Um, and I think there is an, I know whether it's 3% or 4%, but you're talking about a very, very small slice of the electorate that is even open-minded remotely. Mm -hmm. And I think there's an argument that that was very effective. Uh, and it, and he won all 3% of it. Now you get into the other issue of like, you know, the part about the, in the constitution where Democrats have to win by more than three points to become president, right? So there's a whole other thing. Um, but Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and to some degree, maybe that those dynamics will be a bit different come 2022, just because I think there was a feeling a little bit that when we got over the hump of vaccine scarcity, that this would be over. And we're now kind of facing the reality for the first time that there is like a sect of our society who is, you know, the ones who are not letting it not be over, that we have the means for it to be over, but they won't allow it to. And I, that might, I think, change people's calculations a bit. I think, I think that at least might make the, the offering of kind of like Greg Abbott versus I will do everything in my power to end the pandemic might make that a bit more compelling than it was in 2020. Yeah. I mean, I think it, I think it goes both ways because unfortunately, I don't think it is a hundred percent, as you say, the kind of like, you know, if, you know, give me a state where you get a hundred percent vaccination and we're like, you know, we're all, mm -hmm. uh, you know, going to escape rooms and, 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 and being in, in, you know, and, you know, breathing heavy on each other in little boxes and stuff and everything's great. Uh, the vaccine, the vaccines are not quite as good as we thought. Um, you know, great for keeping you alive, great for keeping you out of hospital, but not perfect for just, preventing you from getting sick with COVID. All, you know, we know all this. So there's, there's, there's that. Um, having said that, I think you're largely right. And we've even, you know, it's been overshadowed a bit in the last, you know, few weeks by Afghanistan and, you know, the sort of the budget stuff. But we were already seeing a lot of cases of companies, mm -hmm. states doing various vaccine mandate kind of things and by all the ways we measure people's approval of these things, people are like, yep, do it, dude. Yeah. You know, I'm so sick of these people who will not get vaccinated. And I think we even see it playing out in, we, I mean, we clearly see it. And our team has done a great job reporting on this. We've seen it play out in Texas and Florida. These governors are diehard on these, you know, no, no mask mandates, but they are being, um, I'm not even sure what you'd call it exactly. There's kind of this in-state nullification where they're having, you know, kind of urban uprisings against their executive orders and stuff like that. And one of the ways that, that um, these things perpetuate themselves is at some level, those, you know, Ron DeSantis is, is, is running for the Republican primary electorate in 2023 and 2024. So, the fact that he's getting sort of overwhelmed at this at, in in the big metros doesn't matter to him. But um, but I think you do see the the um, you you see that already playing out with people saying like, well, I'm not you know kind of like yeah, vaccine freedom and all that, but like man, we've taken a beating here, mm -hmm. and our our ICUs are are, are full, um, and we don't even know what's going to happen when the school year starts, right? So um, I think you are, I think 
you already saw the politics there where, you know, kind of broadly, you have the first six months of the year when everybody's like, okay, Biden's doing pretty well here. He's really, he's killing it on, so to speak, on on COVID. You know, he's up to like 60% approval, all that kind of stuff. And then you have like, oh no, okay, I guess we're not done. And that knocks his rating down, not because he did anything wrong necessarily, but president's president. When things suck, you don't think well about the president. And then you have this kind of third thing where people are saying, I'm really fucking sick of hearing about these people who are refusing to get vaccinated, who won't even let my own my school district make a thing where kids have to wear masks. I mean, come on, surgical masks, that's not a heavy lift, right? This isn't like, <laughs> at, at, at a certain level, even a vaccine, you are injecting something into your body. That is That goes to something very basic about bodily autonomy. Mm-hmm. Putting on a surgical mask, give me a fucking break. It's, it's, it's just not the end of the world, especially when you have kids who are all unvaccinated. So right. my take. Okay. And our last question here from Alex. Uh, this is for Josh specifically. He said, or she says, Josh, I know you changed your mind before the invasion started, but I would love to hear you run through the evolution in your thinking on the Iraq war. I just keep finding myself thinking back to that weird 2001, 2005 era a lot these days, thinking about how it's at the stage for what the Republican Party has become and where it's going. I'm interested in your insight as someone who hopped off that train early. I'm glad I got this question. And and um, for those who, <laughs> it's weird because this is sort of ancient history now. It's 20 years ago. Um, but what Alex is referring to is that back into the 90s, late 90s, and in the early buildup to the Iraq war, uh, I was very against all the WMD scare tactics for years had been against all the people trying to get us to, you know, invade Iraq and do all this kind of stuff. And then there was a window of time where I was sort of supporting it. And then I wasn't supporting it. And how did that happen? What was I thinking? And I think the answer to that is, the answer to that is kind of complicated. And um, when someone says the answer is kind of complicated, that's usually a good possible indication, indication that the answer is not that good. Okay, but it is complicated, and I'll let you just decide whether it's good or not. Um, basically, as I said, uh, for years I had been writing and reporting about how all this WMD hysteria, and during 2002, most of my reporting was about how the Bush administration was lying about this WMD stuff. Not that that. You know, I assumed that Iraq had some chemical weapons laying around, but that never really that, that didn't matter. That was irrelevant. We're talking the real thing was biological weapons and nuclear weapons. All this kind of you know, go back and read what I was writing in in two thousand two, and and um and you see this. And then I I I I wrote this article for the Washington Monthly, um, where I had a, a gig at the time. I was like, you know, I contributing editor there. So I wrote a lot of long form magazine articles. And I did a ton of reporting. And I came out of that reporting with a piece that said, all the stuff that that the Bush people are saying is bullshit. But but we should threaten military force to get those inspectors back into the country. And so then I was sort of like pro-war. I wasn't pro-war in the sense they were pro-war, but I was saying we should threaten force, threaten invasion to get those inspectors back in. And then, uh, you know, for the kind of the fall of, uh, you know, the the last few months of uh, 2002, that was kind of where I was. And then we did threaten force. And, and you know, all that story. And um, then the inspectors were let back in. And I thought, okay, well, you know, we're not gonna, we can't really invade now because we, we premise this on this, you know, on these inspector things. Um, and now they're back in. And of course, Bush went ahead and invaded anyway. And before we invaded, I said, you know, we should not do this. And it's always kind of hard because everything is in motion. And are you really saying you stop everything? And I said, yes, we should stop everything. This is not, I had a post I did, and I don't remember exactly the date, where I said, before this happens, everybody should go on the record and just say, should we be doing this? And, um, and I said, no, 
this is a mistake. We should not be doing this. Now, this was a great learning, a great, a very big learning experience for me. Um, and I thought I would take this opportunity. I really haven't done this in the past to to explain what I learned from this. Because as I said, I didn't support what the Bush administration was doing. I was saying throughout that they were lying about this and that we should not invade Iraq to, you know, create a democracy and all this kind of stuff, but that we did have this very specific thing that we needed to resolve and it was worth threatening military force to resolve it. And uh, so it goes back to this article I reported on. And I mean, I talked to everybody. I talked to the Hawks. I talked to the Doves. I talked to the, um, I mean, Probably I talked to the hawks and I talked to the hawkish doves, right? But I talked to a lot of people. And I remember in the first draft of that piece, I came back to my editor, Paul Glastris, um, who, who's the editor of the Washington Monthly. And I said, I kind of, you know, I kind of like, well, I can see it this way, I can see it that way, right? And I kind of going back and forth. And he said, well, you can't. He basically pushed me to, to write the article that I wrote because that was one of the two ways I could see it. And I did write that article that way with the position that I, that I just explained. Um, and I think what I, there's a bunch of things that I, I, I learned from that and that I regret from that. Um, but one thing is that I, obviously I bought into a lot of assumptions that made that kind of pro-war, for lack of a better word, position if not inevitable, but it kind of greased the skids to get in that, to get to that place. Needing, you know, this, because if you go back to that time, the U.S. had basically had Iraq under military quarantine for years because they had kicked out these WMD inspectors and we wanted them to be back in. So we had all these no-fly zones and all this kind of stuff. Uh, we were barring various things from being imported into the country. And, you know, some of those were medicines for kids and all this kind of, we had this kind of bleeding wound in Iraq that was Iraq, Iraqis bleeding, but we were responsible for it. And so people in Washington were saying, this is, the the sanctions we have on this country are getting weaker every year and people are dying because of what we're doing and so does this can this go on indefinitely you know or do we need to resolve it do we need to get those inspectors back in and again get the whole thing you know resolved or does it just kind of go on into the future and if you bought those premises that we can't just not have inspectors and we can't just let this go on forever then should we resolve it? Well, we should resolve it. Or this was my thinking at the time or what persuaded me at the time. Because you shouldn't keep kicking the can down the road. You resolve things. And how do you resolve things? When a country doesn't want you to resolve it, you resolve it with threats of military force. And what I, what I, um, what I learned from that is when you start with the wrong premises, you can make some bad decisions. You can come to some bad conclusions. The other thing is there was a way at the time when the Washington political pro you get these logical arguments. Well, do you have to have inspectors? Well, of course, we can't not have inspectors because we can't have them having, you know, chemical weapons and stuff like that. Well, will we ever get them back in if we don't have military force? Well, probably not. Why would they ever do that? Well, then clearly we need to threaten force. And if you threaten force, you have to be willing to use force. And again, these logical arguments, right? And don't kick the can down the road. Logical arguments, almost like syllogisms. And what I learned from that is most of the time you should kick the can down the road. Because you shouldn't, it's really dangerous to threaten military force because then you'll end up using it. And you should really avoid that if at all possible. And, and this has informed my thinking about this, all this stuff about like Iran and nuclear weapon. Well, this is, you know, that deal that only puts it off for 10 years, kicking the can down the road. Time's not on your side. Well, in fact, you should almost always kick the can down the road because wars are really bad and they have, un, they have unintentional consequences and all sorts of things like that. And so when someone gives you kind of a, a, a syllogistic logical argument, 
that kind of gets you to, oh, well, I guess, I guess this does make sense. Those are never good. Those are those are sort of people uh, getting you into wars on the basis of logic problems. And again, this idea like, well, don't you gotta you don't kick the can down the road. All this kind of stuff. That was what I I um, I let myself be pulled into. Now the other part of this is that at the time my thinking was I'm not supporting Bush, and I wasn't supporting Bush. I was criticizing him at every step of the road and saying he's lying about these WMDs. Um, I think he's probably even, he's lying that this is even the premise of why we're invading in the first place. But separate from what Bush is doing, there's actually a good argument for threatening military force to get these inspectors back in because we have to resolve this and it's a bleeding wound and, uh, you know, kids are dying in Iraq because they're not getting the medicines they need and stuff like this. And it is one of the great conceits of people who do what I do, who learn about things and write about things for a living and was a conceit that I was under the grips of at that time in my life and at that point in my career, that you can have this little kind of boutique idea that I'm not doing what Bush is doing. I have my other reason for, 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 for doing it. And uh, so a kind of a, a, a boutique logic that is your, a logic of your own creation, even though Bush is the one who is president. And if you are supporting threatening an invasion for other good reasons in your mind that are separate from his bad reasons, you're still a person in the country who is a voice supporting invasion. And that's really all that counts. And so uh, that is my kind of lessons learned. Because again, as I said, I, I wasn't supporting what Bush was doing. I was against what he was doing. But I still again, convinced myself of this logic. And I, and I kind of thought, well, but I, this is, but this is, this makes sense. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if Bush also supports this. None of that matters. And it's, it's, a, it's a conceit of people who, who write for a, a living that you can, that you think you, you live separate from the realities of what is, or, you know, uh, happening. So anyway, that is my, um, sort of impromptu explanation of, of, of the evolution of my thinking, um, for, you know, such as it is. Um, so it was, it was a great, I want to say great learning experience. I learned a lot about the conceits of people like myself and the conceits of people who play around with and think about ideas and write about ideas and how you can, uh, uh, fool yourself. So that's, that's my answer to that question. Cool. That was cool to hear. Yeah. Well, there it is. There it is. I, I, I will say it was, it's, it's been, some, it's been one of these things where for years after I have both said and thought to a degree rightly that the position that I had at the time was, um, misportrayed, which it was, um, in the, you know, for the ways that I've described, but also that at the end of the day, it really didn't matter that it was misportrayed. And um, I think it's one of the few, it's one of the very, very few regrets I have about things that I've argued over the time that I've been a, that I've been a working journalist. I can't really think of, can't really think of anything else. And that's not to say I haven't gotten things wrong, but, um, and, and, but yeah, there you go. Well, as a first grader at the time, my opinion on the Iraq war was unimpeachable. So, yeah, well, I, you know, in, in, <laughs> it's, uh, my, it's in, hard to live up to my standard. In, 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 in my non-defense, I was, I was, I was, I think I, well, I was, I was like 32, 32, 33, 34 at the time. So I was, uh, I was, I was a full grown adult and, and that was, <laughs> that was it. But, but it's, 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 it's true that that was, um, you know, uh, many other people learn things a lot harder than I did, but in my uh, cocooned little world, it was um, an important learning experience. It certainly, it certainly informed 
how I have thought about ideas and logic. And do you, do you, you know, one of the basic things, do you need to have a logical solution to this problem someone's putting before you? Do you need to have one that addresses every, you know, every, every point and, 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 and every objection? Like, no, you don't. Many things are, are best left in place. You leave them in place. You hope some other, you know, if, 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 if the logical, you know, the, the logic game solutions give you an answer that doesn't look great, let it ride. Cause maybe some other options will come up. Um, anyway, there you go. So, uh, with all that, uh, jammering and, and, uh, and, and, uh, self-protection and self-defense, let me remind you that the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get 25% off on your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. And also, you want to, you want to tell them we're still, we're, we're still at work on. Yeah. I'm still going through the clips. They're great. We're really enjoying it. Uh, You know, we'll have a winner to you soon, but again, thank you for everyone who submitted. It's been a fun process. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Talk to you next week. All right. Thanks, everyone.